pray together. Father, that song really is a prayer. It's a plea to you to, to meet with us as only you can meet with us, to do things in us that only you can do. Father, to change us in ways that maybe we don't even see ourselves, we need to be changed. But, but most of all, it's a prayer, Father, really just to align our hearts with yours. Father, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to make us less like the people we were without you and more like the, the people you created us to be in the first place. And so we do ask this morning, Father, we pray, we sing, asking that your Holy Spirit would fall upon our hearts in a fresh a powerful way here this morning. I believe that's happening already as we have worshiped, as we've come to the communion table. Father, as we have given of our resources back to you and all the rest, I thank you that, Lord, at least it seems clear to me that you're here with us today and that you have things you want to accomplish. Father, in your word in Psalm 5, David said, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy that you may shelter them for those who love your name that they may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord, and you surround him with favor as with a shield. Father, we don't understand why promises like that are, are so, why you would make promises like that to us, that if we take refuge in you, you will shelter us and provide for us and, and deliver us and rescue us and help us. And Father, meet us where we are and move us to where you want us to be. Uh, we know, Lord, that, that it all really comes down to one thing, one truth, and that's grace. Father, that you give us what we don't deserve, that you bless us in ways that, that we aren't entitled to, that we have no claim on. And, and Father, what we proclaim here this morning is you do all of those things through your Son, Jesus Christ. That it is in Christ that all the promises of God are true. It is in Christ that all the promises of God will be fulfilled. And Father, they have been fulfilled in our lives. Many of them are being fulfilled today. And, and, and the ones that haven't been one day soon, they will be. All the promises of God our yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that, that even as, as David says in this psalm, is what we're doing right now, in a very real sense, coming together on a Sunday morning is in fact taking refuge in you. You promise if we'll do that to, to surround us, to, to give us your favor, to, to move among us. And Father, that's my prayer right now. As we go to your word, Lord, on top of all that we've already said and done and seen and heard, Lord, I pray that in our remaining time together this morning, you would give us attentive hearts. Not to hear what I have to say, but to hear what you want to say to us through your word. Father, there's nothing like your word. There's nothing like really in it the stories of Jesus and the things he did, the power he possessed, the lives that he changed. And Father, we thank you that we can be counted among those changed lives today. So Father, I'm just going to ask as we turn now to your word, what I ask every week at this time, what we always need to ask is that you would be with us in a powerful and personal way, that your spirit would be the one to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from pride and apathy and indifference. And Father, to open our eyes and awaken our hearts to help us, Father, truly this morning to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we look at your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we look at your word. And Lord, when we leave in a little while, as always, may it be rejoicing, not just because it was a good day at church, but because we met with Jesus who loved us enough to die in our place and rise again in victory. It is him we praise, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're taking your seats, we'll, as always, dismiss the boys and girls for Children's Church. They can make their way out, as I would invite you to make your way in to God's Word. Turn in your Bible with me this morning to Mark chapter 2. 
I want you to meet me in Mark chapter 2 where we're going to look at the next snapshot as I've been referring to them in the life and the earthly ministry of, of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 2 is where I want you to meet me where we're going we're gonna to dig in. Let me just say, it just seems like I don't know what it is. There's just a little extra energy in the house this morning. I don't know why that is. If it's the extra hour of sleep, if, if it's the outcome of a certain ball game yesterday, at least for some of us, maybe not all of us, or maybe it's just because in some cases your kids got up an hour earlier and you've just been itching to get out of the house, as seems to happen at ours on days like this when the clocks change around. But whatever the case, I, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we have time together to look at God's Word As I said, we're in Mark chapter 2. We're just going to look at at five little verses here uh, in just a moment, right in the middle of the chapter. And I'm going to read them in a moment, but but just to sort of remember where we've been so far or bring you up to speed if you've not been with us these recent weeks as well. Uh, Let me just remind you or share with you as we begin our time in God's Word this morning that already in the Gospel of Mark, in, in, in actually just the span of a chapter and a half, We have seen Jesus, starting back in chapter 1, call, first of all, four ordinary men to be his original disciples. We've seen him heal a man from demonic oppression. We've seen him raise Peter's mother-in-law, who was so incapacitated with a fever she was stuck in bed, raise her back up to immediate full health. And and as a result, even of just those first couple of things, of delivering a demon-possessed man and healing Peter's mother-in-law, almost immediately what began to happen is we've seen countless others begin coming to Jesus with similar sorts of problems and dilemmas, spiritual problems, physical problems, emotional problems, coming to him literally we've seen already around the clock for help. And we've seen him, we've seen according to Mark's gospel, him meet and satisfy every single one of those people's needs. Not only that, a couple of Sundays ago we saw him cure a leper, taking hold of him with his own hands, one of societies of that society's true untouchables. Jesus took him in his arms and cleansed and healed him. And then last Sunday when we were together, that very memorable story of friends digging a hole in, in, in probably what was Peter's roof, lowering their friend down on a mat who was a paralytic, and Jesus saying to him, rise up, be healed, and walk. My point is simply this as we begin this morning. In a very, very short span of time, we've seen Jesus Christ transform a whole lot of lives, help a whole lot of people change a whole lot of stories, but we've also seen him do something else in each and every one, almost each and every one of those instances as well. What we've also seen Jesus do in just the span of a chapter and a half is rattle some religious cages as well, upset the system into which he was born here on planet earth. And while the scene we're about to look at in this morning's snapshot from Mark's gospel, the scene we're about to look at is somewhat different than what's come before. What I want you to know, and I want you to see going in, is that what Jesus did and the response that he got to it was no less dramatic than anything else we've seen so far. Because here's here's what happened. Beginning in verse 13, Mark chapter 2, grab your Bible. Beginning in verse 13 and reading down through verse 17, this is what God's word tells us happened next. It says, and he, that is Jesus, he's back in Capernaum, it says he went out by the seashore. And all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, got up and followed him. And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, Levi's house. 
And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's several things I'm going to bring to your attention this morning in the span of just those five verses. But the first and the most foundational one, the one that we have to see or take hold of or understand somehow before we can look at anything else is this. The first of the several things I want you to see in this passage this morning that we need to clearly understand is the truly astonishing nature. This is the first thing if you're following along in the outline. The truly astonishing nature of Levi's call to follow Jesus. We must understand how truly astonishing, shocking, if you will, it was that Jesus extended a call to this particular individual. Because while verse 14 sounds simple enough when it says, look again at your Bible, that as he passed by, I mean, it's a very simple language. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, got up and followed him. As simple as that sounds, please don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the simplicity of the text, because what just happened in that single verse was was fantastic and phenomenal in a whole host of ways. Because while we don't know much, at least at this point, about Levi personally, Mark doesn't give us, at this point in the story, much information, other than a couple of things we can be pretty sure of. Number one, he was Jewish. His name was Levi. That's a Jewish name. And number two, according to verse 15, he was probably a wealthy man because he hosted a a large gathering in his home for all these tax collectors and sinners. Well, that's really all we know about Levi the man at this point in the story. We do know a lot about his kind of person, tax collectors. And we know it both from the scriptures and from many reliable, extra-biblical sources as well. And here's what I want you to know about tax collectors in Jesus' day. None of what we know about them is good. None of what we know about them paints them in in a good light whatsoever. In fact, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Mark's gospel, provides a really riveting and helpful summary. And I just want you to follow along as I read a couple paragraphs of it to you. Just to understand, uh, again, we don't know much yet about Levi personally, but let me just tell you about the kind of person he was and the kind of job he had. Listen close. Hughes says this, talking first of all about the Roman system of tax collection because Israel at this point in time was part of the Roman Empire. They were under Caesar's thumb and they answered ultimately to him. And as such, Hughes says that in those days the Romans collected taxes through a system known as tax farming. And what that meant was this. They looked at all the various districts in the Roman Empire and they assigned to each district a tax value. They said, by the end of this calendar year, this much money has to come out of that group of people. And we expect it to be paid in full and on time. Well, what they did then was sort of like a McDonald's fast food franchise. They franchised out the responsibility of collecting taxes to the highest bidder. You got to pay for the right to collect taxes for the Roman Empire. And whoever could pay the most for that right got to do the collecting and then had to hand over that figure at the end of the year. But here's the thing. They had to hand over the assessed figure But anything over and above that that they collected, anything additional to that number the Romans gave them, they got to keep and do whatever they wanted to with. 
And here's how the system works, Hughes said. The system consisted of two categories of taxes. First, there were stated taxes. Listen to this. There was, number one, a poll tax, which all men age 14 to 65 and all women age 12 to 65, don't ask me why, had to pay simply for the reason of being alive. Then there was a ground tax, which required one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. And in some places, the Romans also exacted a fish tax. And very possibly, this was done in Capernaum, where the fishing industry was so vital. Finally, on top of that, there was an income tax, which was 1% of one's annual income. (laughs) Not bad, right? 1%. That's the fixed system. And, And in that, there was not much room for manipulation. But in the second area of taxes, there was ample opportunity for abuse. And this is what Levi and people like him did. So the people paid separate taxes for using the roads and docking and harbors. There was a sales tax on certain items as well as import and export duties. A tax was even to be paid on carts. In fact, each individual wheel on a cart was taxed independently. That's how the system worked. And and as such, tax collectors, tax gatherers could stop anyone on the road at any time. They could make him or her unpack their bundles and charge just about anything they wanted. If the person couldn't pay, the tax collectors would offer to to lend them money at an exorbitant rate. In, In other words, tax collectors, Hugh says, in the Roman Empire were trained extortionists. It was their job to separate you from as much of your money as they possibly could, and they always got away with it. The Jewish tax collectors, as such, Hughes concludes, not hard for us to see or understand. In those days, Jewish tax collectors like Levi were easily the most hated men in all of Hebrew society. A a more recent historical parallel or context would be uh, that they were viewed in, in essentially the same esteem by their own people as those who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. Tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were, among other things, cultural traitors, religious outcasts, and social bullies all rolled into one. Not only that, at a more personal level, and this is just sort of an inference, but I think it's probably a safe one. I think you could probably follow me on this. It it occurred to me as I was looking at the passage this week, if, if, if that's the kind of person this was, and we go back to verses 13 and 14 and look at where Jesus found him, what did it say? It says, Jesus one day was out by the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, outside of Capernaum, where the people were coming to him, and it was as he was walking along the seashore that he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and said to him, follow me. I think we can safely assume that Levi had practiced his extortionistic ways on Peter and Andrew and James and John themselves because they were fishermen. A little animosity, perhaps, among the disciples right from the start. And yet this is the man to whom Jesus says, come, follow me. And Mark tells us that when Jesus invited him, when he extended that invitation to join the inner circle, Levi readily accepted. In fact, Luke tells the story in his gospel, Luke chapter 5. In Luke 5, 28, he says specifically this. He says, when Jesus spoke, Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus Christ. And, and just as an aside, this is free, but you might like to know this. Not only by the time Jesus' ministry here on earth was over had he given this man, Levi, a new life, by the end of his time here on earth, he'd also given this man, Levi, a new name. His new name was Matthew the author of the first gospel. That's how astonishing, that's how radical a a transformation the call uh, Jesus placed on his life turned out to be. 
And, you know, as you think about that and start putting those pieces together, uh, you know, we could certainly, that would certainly allow us or enable us to spend the rest of our time together this morning simply sort of pondering and and savoring and and thinking about what a a marvelous transformation, what a difference it made in in Levi's life personally, the call of Jesus and and, and his, his invitation to come follow him. We could talk about all that Jesus' call meant to him personally, but we're not going to do that. Because that's not what Mark does here in the remainder of the passage. Instead, what Mark does, the author of the gospel in verses 15, 16, and 17, is he exposes for us, he shows to us what this astonishing call meant to everybody else. Everybody who saw it. Everybody who heard about it. Everybody who witnessed it in and around Capernaum. And here's what I want you to know about what everybody else thought. That when they be, the word began to get out that Jesus had called Levi, that when word got around that, that it was a tax collector that Jesus invited into his inner circle next, everyone in town came to the, essentially, the Bible doesn't put it this way, but I think this is a, an appropriate way to put it, everyone in town came to the same conclusion. It is as follows. You ready? Here it is. This guy, this Jesus, he'll take anybody right? (laughs) This Jesus, this Jesus character, he'll take anybody. Everybody draws the same conclusion, but here's the kicker. They don't all draw it for the same reason. They don't all come to that conclusion with the same attitude of mind and of heart. In fact, what happens next in the remainder of this story, again, they all come to the same conclusion. I got thinking about this, and follow me, my mind goes odd places sometimes. But as I read this story and thought about that conclusion, it reminded me of what I think is a, a really, that really effective State Farm car insurance commercial that's been on for the last, I don't know, six or eight months, uh, where it flashes back and forth. There's the, the businessman who comes outside and finds his car, car has been stripped, and then there's the, the teenage girl who walks outside to find her, her parents have bought her a brand new car, don't live in my neighborhood, that's for sure, but some people apparently do that. But it goes back and forth. And if you, who's seen the commercial? You know what I'm talking about? Most of you have seen it. They go back and forth. They're saying the same thing. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. How, you know, is, is this for me? Is, is this for me? Back and forth. They're, they're looking at two different things, but they're saying all the same words with very different mind, attitudes of mind and heart. Here, the only difference is everybody's looking at the same thing. Jesus picks the tax, tax collector. And they all say the same thing. He'll he'll take anybody. He'll take anybody. But the attitudes with which they say it are radically different. For instance, let me me tell you for for a couple of minutes what his call to Levi, this is the second thing I want to show you this morning, what it meant to sinners. What Jesus' astonishing call to Levi, come follow me, meant to the sinners who lived in and around Capernaum. And the reason I put sinners, as you'll see it on the screen behind me, in quotation marks, is because when we see the word sinners in this passage, I want you to know that it does not refer to the worst people Israel had to offer. When you see sinners in this passage, we don't think the dregs of society, the scum of the earth, the worst possible people who live in the seediest neighborhoods and do the the, the most grotesque kind of things. That's not what sinners means in this passage. Instead, when you see the word sinners in, in verses 15, 16, and 17, what, what Mark is referring to, what people are talking about, is a whole host of people who for various reasons had run afoul of the massive lists of do's and don'ts that the Pharisees had established for the people to live by. 
the standard that they used to determine who's a good Jew and who's a bad one. See, there was the Old Testament law, and that was weighty enough. But what the Pharisees had been doing for generations is adding to it and, and micromanaging it and, and adding all sorts of different rules and regulations about the way you've got to live if you want to be on God's good side. And so when you see the word sinners in this passage, it's talking about anyone who for any reason has violated one of those rules. And as such, they would say, are on the, the outside looking in. I want you to understand is... What I want you to understand is when you see the word sinners in verse 15, we're talking about religious outcasts. We're talking about people who were used to saying they'd heard all their life, you're not good enough for God. You're not good enough. You don't belong. You're not welcome in the temple. You're on God's naughty list. And oh, by the way, if you keep going down the path you're on, you can kiss any hope of heaven goodbye. Because you're not like us. We're the good people. We're the rule keepers, and you're not religious outcast. But of course, what this passage shows is that Jesus saw people like that very differently. In fact, when verse 15 says, look again at your Bible, that, that it happened that he was reclining at the table in Levi's house. You know what the contemporary equivalent of that would be for you and me? It'd be Jesus shows up at your, not at your front door, at your back door, okay? And he walks into your living room, and as he's stepping into the room, he kicks off his shoes, and he makes his way to your most comfortable recliner. And then he flips the lever and puts his feet up, all right? And say, I'm comfortable in this home. These are my people. And, and I want you to know you're welcome in my presence. You see, when it says in verse 15, he was reclining at the table, everybody knew back in Mark's and Jesus' day, that was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of belonging. And the reason, so as verse 15 says, so many of these sinners, these religious outcasts were there, and it says not only that, the end of verse 15, there were many of them and they were actually like Levi following him. You know why that was? Simply this, because Levi had gone out and done what we're supposed to do. Tell other people what Jesus had done for him. Just go tell them, Jesus had changed my life. And who did he know? He's a tax collector. His only friends are going to be tax collectors too, right? Religious outcasts like him. And when Jesus changed his life, uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a leap at all. He just went out and told them. And when they heard that, they began to show up by the dozens. Levi had gone out and spread the word. This Jesus, he'll take what? Anybody. And you know what that means? Here's what that meant for sinners like Levi. It meant there is hope for people like us. There is hope in this world, there is hope in God for people like us. That's what Levi's astonishing call to follow Jesus meant to sinners. It meant there's hope for anybody. There's hope for everybody. It means you can be saved. And so when they said Jesus will take anybody, that's the, the conclusion or the application they went to. And, and while as I as I said to you a moment ago, the religious leaders, everyone else, had drawn the same conclusion, this, this Jesus will take anybody. What I want you to see next is they drew their conclusion for a very different reason. Said the same thing, but again with a different attitude of mind and heart. While for the, the sinners it meant he'll take anybody, that means there's hope for people like us. What I want to show you next is what it meant to saints. <laughs> what Jesus' astonishing call to Levi meant to the, the saints who are found in this story, specifically found in verse 16. And, and the reason I put saints here in quotation marks as well 
is because even though the guys, the, the scribes of the Pharisees, it says at the beginning of verse 16, in those days, even though they were the guys who wore all the religious robes, and literally, and, and they kept all the religious rules, and they knew all the, uh, the religious ins and outs of the law and all the rest, they were anything but saintly. Anything but saintly in their attitude toward the people that God had called them to shepherd. They were anything but kind and compassionate toward the people. I mean, just look at the words they use in verse 16. Look again at your Bible. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, love that. They still can't go to Jesus himself, right? They're doing the end around of the disciples. Hey, guys, right? We don't want to hear him. You're about to be busted again. But here's what they said to the disciples. Disciples, guys, why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? That tells you all you need to know about their attitude, right, toward these people. Outcasts, untouchables, unwelcome. Not good. And yet they were supposed to be Israel's religious and spiritual shepherds. And they looked at these people as untouchable and unwelcome. As I thought about that, it it occurred to me that, that what it seems to be saying is evidently somewhere along the way, down through the years, they had misplaced Isaiah's memo in Isaiah 61, that said when Messiah comes, here's what he's going to do. When Messiah comes, Isaiah 61, verse 1, he's going to bring good news to the afflicted. That he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to, to captives and, and going to bring freedom to prisoners. You see, the problem the Pharisees, the religious leaders and authorities had is they just couldn't do the math of why someone like Jesus, who was so powerful and so wonderful and so dynamic and so magnetic and, and so transformative of everyone he met would treat people like this like friends. They just couldn't figure it out because that's not what they had ever done. Stay as far away from us as possible was their attitude. Jesus' attitude is no, come as close as possible. Come, follow me. And, and because what Jesus was doing was threatening the, the very detailed religious structure that they not only devoted their lives to upholding, but to protecting as well, to maintaining as well, you know what they meant when they came to the conclusion this Jesus will take anybody is he must be stopped. This can't continue. He's messing with the system. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's turning everything upside down and inside out. And he must be stopped. That's what Levi's astonishing call to follow Jesus meant to them. Something obviously very different than what it meant to the the sinners that Jesus was dining with and fellowshipping with in this story. They all came to the same conclusion, but with two very different attitudes of mind and heart. One says there's hope for people like us. The other says stop him as fast as you can. And the way I see it, what that means we need to do this morning before we're done, before we close this story and move on to the next one, is, you know, we'd better account for, we'd better figure out what was it in this instance that accounts for the difference. Why everybody could see the same thing. Why they could all come essentially to, you know, to the same conclusion. He'll take anybody. And yet one group essentially fall in love with him. And the other group decide that their only choice is to destroy him. What accounts for the difference? What accounts for the difference? You know, a couple of weeks ago, some of you know this, um, but right after church ended two Sundays ago, 
Um, our youngest son, Lincoln, he's five, was playing. We were up here talking, and he was down in the basement, and he was standing on a table he wasn't supposed to be standing on down in the basement, and he fell. And when he fell, he landed on his head. And, uh, and we didn't see it. We didn't know what happened. Uh, all we know is he came up. Somebody brought him up. And, and if you haven't been in our basement downstairs here before, it's very, very hard, okay? So he came up, and, but at first it seemed like everything was fine. You know, other than a few tears and needing a hug from his mom, it, okay, no big deal. He, after that, he walked with me over to my office. We got a snack from my desk. We were talking and hanging out. We walked to the car. And then on the ride home, everything began to change. He got very, very pale. He got very, very sleepy. Now, we got him in the door, and he sat down on the chair with Beth, and I was sitting on the couch across from them. And all of a sudden, he said, my head, re- my head hurts, and, and, and now my tummy hurts. And then over the next 10 minutes, just proceeded to begin vomiting over and over and over again, and we realize something's wrong here, right? We're not, we're not you know, medically trained, but we can see all the signs of, of a concussion. That something inside that we can't see wasn't right. And, and that's when we realized that it was unmistakably clear that what this kid needs in this moment is not his mommy's lap, and he doesn't need his daddy's hug. He needs a physician. He needs a doctor, and he needs that attention now. Now, thank God, everything worked out okay. A couple hours later and a couple days later, he was fine. But I tell you that story because what happened, that moment of recognition, he doesn't need a hug, he needs a CAT scan, right? That's what he needed. It is the same basic idea Jesus expresses here in verse 17. Look at your Bible. When it says, Jesus says to them, hearing this, love it, they go to the disciples, Jesus hears them anyway. He said to them, when they're asking the question, why does Jesus hang with people like that? He said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. And likewise, gentlemen, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And what accounts for the difference? Well, what Jesus is not saying, everybody say, he's not saying what Jesus is not, was not saying in this story is that one group in the room had a sin problem and the other one didn't. That's not the message here when he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Actually, what the word righteous here literally means is the self-righteous, okay, the self-satisfied. Everybody that day in Levi's house was a sinner. Here's what accounts for the difference. One group in the room that afternoon knew it, and the other group in the room that afternoon didn't. One group believed they had a sin problem. The other group thought that, spiritually speaking, they were just fine. And that's why one group in the room that afternoon couldn't get close enough to Jesus, while the other group in the room couldn't figure out fast enough how to get rid of him. See, the truly revolutionary thing, listen, The truly revolutionary thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus came proclaiming and that we have been the recipients of and are now proclaiming in his name, the truly revolutionary thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is, as as author Walter Wessel says in his commentary, he says, it is not the doctrine, listen to me on this, okay, follow me because what I'm going to say first is going to sound like I'm wrong, but I think you'll see that it's right. The truly revolutionary thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is, quote, not the doctrine that God saves sinners. The truly revolutionary thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he saves sinners as sinners. He saves us as sinners. What do I mean by that? That he meets us where we are. He came to Levi's turf, right? 
He came to our planet. And, and when he meets us where we are, you know what Jesus does? When he gets there, he tells it like it is. He tells it like it is. And, and he says to us that if we'll repent, if we will agree with his assessment of what's really wrong with us, if we will repent and believe in him, then by grace through faith, he will give us the gift of brand new life. That's the revolutionary thing. It's not fix yourself up and come to God. It's no God came to us to save us as sinners and give us the gift of new life. And that is what the religious types, the saints in this story, they just couldn't figure. Because their whole life had been devoted to fix yourself, keep the rules, toe the line, walk the walk. And if you don't, you're in serious trouble. That's what they couldn't figure out. It's why I titled the message, A New Point of View, because they hadn't thought this way before. They didn't realize that was the message. What accounted for the difference then and still has accounted for the difference ever since is that some of the people in the room, starting with Levi and all his tax collector friends, recognized their need for Jesus. That's the difference. One group said, we don't need any help. <laughs> and the other group said, oh, yes, we do. And he's here. They needed him to rescue him from their sin. My question this morning is, how about you? How about you? And understand when I ask the question, I'm not asking that to a minority group of people in the room this morning. This is a question for all of us, me included. How about you? Do you recognize your need for Jesus Christ today? Now, for some of you in the room, what I mean by that is this. I don't know who you are, that's up for God to reveal to you, but I mean this, for some of us here this morning, when I say, how about you, do you recognize your need for Jesus, I'm asking you this question, have you ever truly come to a point in your life, a particular moment in your life when you realize, I can't figure it out, I have a problem that I can't solve, that all the willpower in the world is not going to make me a holy person, a good person. Just what Stuart was laying out for us, walking us through the gospel and communion a little earlier in the service this morning. Have you ever come to a point where you realize, I can't make life make sense on my own? That I need help. That I desperately need help. That I can't overcome my sinful ways. Have you ever come to the point of realizing, uh, there is a God, and not only are you and I not him, we can't get to him on our own. Have you ever gotten there? Have you ever gotten to that point? point have you ever come to a point that most of the pharisees in this story some of them eventually did but most of them never got to of confessing that you have fallen short of god's glory and you desperately need jesus to forgive your sins and give you new life have you ever answered the astonishing call to follow jesus that there is hope for someone like you just as there is hope for us all if not why not and why not today now for the rest of us and we'll come back to this in just a moment but for the rest of us those of us who have made that decision as you sit here this morning you go, yeah there has been a point like praise god there was a point like that in my life maybe it was a long time ago maybe it was very very recently but here's my question for us 
If so, if you've already come to that point of belief, of, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, do you realize as you sit here today that you need Jesus just as much today as you did on that day? Do you realize that? That you have no hope, that I have no hope of moving forward apart from daily deep dependence on him. Because remember something about this story or, or recognize it if you haven't seen it yet. It was, listen to me, it was the guys in this story who knew their Bibles best who had the driest hearts. Who'd lost their first love. Who'd confused knowledge with maturity. Who had it all turned around and inside out who'd forgotten that we walk with Jesus on the same basis we come to him, on the basis of that beautiful word, grace. We walk by grace. That's why the big idea of today's message is simply this, that, that the key to following Jesus, that's again the invitation, follow me. The key to following Jesus is just knowing how much you need him. That's how it starts and that's how it continues to following Jesus, to walking with him, to, as we say around here, moving toward maturity in Christ. It's simply daily, sometimes hourly, coming back and remembering how much I need him. And as we go to prayer, and I'm just going to invite you to, to bow your heads right now as we close this time together in God's word and prayer, just want to give a moment or two to all of us to, in whatever way we need to, perhaps redeclare our dependence on Jesus Christ. If, as you sit here this morning, you're one of those folks I was talking about a moment ago, and, and maybe even you've heard what, what we call the gospel, you've heard it before, you know the story of Jesus, but as you search your heart, as maybe even in this moment the Spirit of God searches your heart, you realize there's just not been that time where you gave in and said, Lord, I, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus. Save me. I'm here to declare to you today that it is really that simple. Lord Jesus, save me. You can keep trying to do it on your own. You're going to end up back in the same place again. There are lots of us here who can tell you that. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, today is the day to declare, Lord Jesus, I need you, I believe in you, I trust you, save me. And you can do that right now, just in the quietness of your heart. As for the rest of us, all of us included here today, Sometimes we really do need to be reminded and, and even to reassert, not because our salvation is at stake, but because our daily walk and love for Jesus Christ, our walk with him, um, is, is impacted so deeply by it. To, to simply say, Lord, and, and I do still need you too. That, Lord, maybe it's in reference to, to what I'm doing to raise my kids. Maybe it's in reference to dealing with some very difficult people in my life or in my office. Maybe it's the things that I lay awake at night worried sick about, finances, health, future, wayward kids, and go, Lord, I need you as much as ever today, too. He gladly receives all who call upon him.
He gladly accepts and embraces all who know how needy they are and bring their neediness to him. And Father, we do just declare here at the end of of this morning together, Lord, we've sung your praise, we've walked to the cross, we've done a lot of stuff, but really the most important one, the one that recenters it all is simply to come back before you before we go home and say, Lord, yes, once again, I, I do need you and I always will. And to know that, that you'll take anybody, even people like us. Father, we thank you for the gift of new life you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the gift of, of daily mercy and grace that you give us in Jesus as well. Father, I pray that as we go from here this morning, as we sing our final song, and then we go to whatever else you have ahead of us, Lord, that you really will seal to our hearts and in our hearts and lives the things of truth that have been declared all throughout this service this morning, and you'll just allow the rest to fade away so that we leave, Lord, once again with eyes and hearts fixed only on Jesus, in whose name we pray.